I'll pass you over now to Chris, who's going to outline Plan B. So, really grateful for all under one banner hosting this event tonight, because ultimately, if Scotland wants to achieve independence, we need to bring the majority of Scotland with us. And if we want to have an effective campaign, we need to bring the majority of the independence movement with us. And of course, although I'm an SNP politician, I absolutely um, realise that independence is bigger than any one political party. And I suppose when Angus McNeil and I first started talking about Plan B, it was a couple of years ago, we were concerned that we were getting ourselves into a tactical position that we were giving Boris Johnson a veto. Of course, at the time it was Theresa May by saying, can we have a Section 30 request, please? And that made it very easy for the UK government to just reject the premises and say, no, now is not the time. And as we approached the UK election in 2019, uh, which was a very foolish election to support, and obviously I'm very proud that Angus was one of the few people that rejected that, because at that point we had a UK parliament. We had Boris Johnson, as Angus said, in a cage, and now we'll see next week the consequences of giving them that supermajority. But in, in the run-up to that election, we were concerned that simply winning another election to ask for a, another Section 30 request, the answer would be no. And of course, you remember back at the time, everyone said, well, the answer won't be no because it will be unsustainable for the SNP to win another huge mandate and for the UK government to say no, even though we have that mandate. And of course, you may remember that some delegates took umbrage to the SNP conference, even debating independence, and I was booed from the stage. But what happened was the SNP won 48 out of the 59 seats, a clear manifesto commitment to give the people of Scotland a choice on their own future. And in January of this year, Boris Johnson ultimately said, no, you've had your referendum. Self-determination was for one day only on the 18th of September 2014, and none of you get to choose again for another 20 or 30 years, which we, we, we heard shortly after that nonsense. So, I mean, if we just reflect back, why do we then need a plan B? Because in 2016, the SNP won a historic amount of constituency votes, the largest ever amount of people voted for the SNP in 2016, with a clear manifesto commitment that if we were dragged out of Europe against our will, we had the right to hold a referendum. Now, arguably, we were dragged out of Europe on the 31st of January of this year because that's when Scotland left the EU with the UK. But it's now beyond all doubt that we're out of the European Union. The deal is in place. It's a deal that absolutely is not as good as the deal we had in the EU. But the, the, the uncertainty is now gone. So there's a clear manifesto commitment there that we have a mandate to hold a referendum. In 2017, we won the general election, you know, Unionists will spin that we lost the general election by winning a majority, but in any other Western country, it was a landslide victory. We won the council elections in 2017. We won the EU elections in 2019. We won the UK Parliament election in 2019. And every single democratic opportunity, the people of Scotland voted for the right to choose, and the UK government said no. Now, in the lead-up to the election in May, we're being asked to believe that now it will be different. We will win, I hope, a majority, a pro-independence majority. And with 16 polls, and who knows how many by the next May saying that the people of Scotland now want to be independent, at that point, even though Boris Johnson has previously said no and Theresa May has said no when the no side was ahead, now that the yes side is ahead and the SNP has won another majority, 
making it likely that the people of Scotland will vote for independence. At that point, the UK government will agree to a referendum when they know they may lose it. That makes no sense to me, and I don't think it makes any sense to the wider independence movement. That's why we need a plan B. And I think tonight we're going to talk through what that plan B is. Now, I think quite clearly we missed a tactical opportunity back in the general election because we could have used that election to progress our mandate. But instead, we've just went for the one more heaved strategy. So May now gives us a real opportunity that we want to go into May's election saying, vote SNP one more time for one more mandate to be told no. Or do we want to go into that election, turning that very election into the democratic opportunity that people in Scotland can express clearly in a legal, safe and democratic manner that they want Scotland to be an independent country. And I would put it to you, that's a plan we should grab. That's great. Thank you, Chris. Um, now, Angus, let's uh, hear from Angus McNeil. Thanks very much, Neil. Uh, Merry Christmas. Nolly Kriya, uh, everybody. Um, I hope you've had a good one, as good as it can be. The, the first point that came in my head there when Chris was talking, he got booed in Aberdeen and I wasn't even there. Uh, normally when Chris gets a boo and I'm usually around. But to the serious point, the matter is, we believe Scotland should have a vote on independence. And that's basically the start and the finish of the whole matter. Now, after that, unfortunately, we started getting into the mechanisms of this. Um, the preferred way that the party policies at the moment has been for a number of elections is to ask the UK Prime Minister to get a Section 30. And that's been done a few times. And every time the answer's been no. Uh, I've done it in letters a couple of times in November 2018, again in November 2020. I asked Boris Johnson on the 15th of September at the Select Committee when he's only three metres away from me. There's no again. Uh, the Scottish Government uh, last year were telling us at conference that it was uh, plan A at momentum. Uh, the letter will be written at the opportune moment. Anyway, the letter was written after the election, which I thought was a tactical mistake. I also thought the election was a mistake. Only Scottish MP that voted against that. Um, and that's where we find ourselves today. Um, so we've asked a number of times and it's been said no. Uh, no was given to us in January, as I said, and it was predicted and predictable that that was going to happen. And we, pred we predicted it and it came to pass. Now, the simple matter is if we do the same thing again at this election, which Boris must be praying that we do, is uh, we don't get an independence referendum. And the 2026 election will be, as Seamus Mallon might have put it, the 2021 election for slow learners. The opportunity cost there is five years. And uh, we don't want to see that happening. We've got a short period of time uh, to stop making Boris Johnson the most important person in Scotland's constitutional future. It's meant to be self-determination, but this is all at the mercy of Boris Johnson as UK Prime Minister to decide whether we have a referendum, regardless of our majorities or not. And that's a crucial difference between Plan A and Plan B. Plan A is asking the Scottish people, can we ask uh, the UK Prime Minister, then can we go back and ask the Scottish people a question? Uh, Plan B uh, accepts that... Yeah, we'd like that to happen. We'd like to have a referendum, a vote. After all, is what I said. Uh, we want to have a vote in independent. But uh, Plan B goes direct and gets the question answered. It's not a question to ask a question to ask a question. It gets the answer in May. Uh, and I'm pretty confident the Scottish people will vote for independence. We've got, is it 17, 18, whatever many polls. Uh, we were promised about two years ago in polls that if we got a hard Brexit, we'd see about 59% of Scots uh, supporting independence. If we've got the hard Brexit, uh, so the polls of January, January and February will be fascinating. But if we don't have a mechanism or a way of harnessing those poll numbers at the ballot box, folks, nothing's going to happen. Uh, Boris will say no. Why would he say yes? And we get nothing happening for independence. That's the long and the short of it. If we 
nail our colours to that one mast. That's why we need the insurance policy. That's why, yeah, we can play the game of plan A and say, Let, let's do that. Uh, but when it fails, we have a fallback. If I was in the Scottish government just now, after each and every poll, I'd be thumping the table and demanding my Section 30 here and now. I would demand the Section 30 and give them a deadline to the 31st of March and say, if we don't have our Section 30 by then, uh, you, Boris Johnson, are making the May the 6th election the plebiscite on independence because of your intransigence and stubbornness and not respecting uh, the view of the Scottish people if they vote for a referendum. So if he doesn't allow the referendum, we just cut, cut to the chase and have that vote. Uh, for independence. And the point is, major point is, is that is the most legal and democratically and internationally accepted democratic event that's going to happen in Scotland in the next uh, number of years. But the final point I'll make is some people say, well, Boris Johnson might say no to plan B. Well, if he says no to plan B, he's already said no to plan A. So that's firstly a clear sign that we'd be going nowhere. But the second thing is very difficult to say no to plan B because Plan B is asking the people, and the people have spoken. So Boris Johnson saying no to Plan A, he's merely saying no to politicians who say they've got a mandate. Saying no to Plan B puts him in the territory of Lukashenko, of Belarus, and he's saying no to the people. Now, the number of uh, conservatives I know personally, and quite like personally, obviously don't like their politics, would be very upset to be in that sort of territory internationally when they travel the world. So let's force his hand. Let's not make it easy for him. Let's not make vetoing uh, Section 30 consequence-free. Let's put Boris Johnson in a difficult position and let's move Scotland forward. With the opportunity to, to do this on May the 6th, or with the opportunity to do the same, same again and wait until 2026. Okay, thanks very much, Angus. That was excellent. Same with Chris. So the first question to bring in is Peter A. Bell. Uh, hi there. Hi. Uh, I'm not sure which one I'm asking first. Okay, we'll go with this one. If adopted, Plan B changes the context in which Boris says no. Is it not possible that the threat of Plan B will oblige him, oblige him to say yes, which he will only do if he knows he can sabotage the process at a later stage and blame it on the SNP? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we've said, if you, unless you want to go first, because one of the things we've said is sort of Plan B stops the veto being consequence-free. It enables the Scottish people to speak at the ballot box and to give their opinion, and Boris Johnson can't block that. But we have to get a ducks in a row. The Scottish government has to take this seriously, put this before the Scottish people in a serious manner, and allow the Scottish people to speak. So absolutely, Plan B either enables Plan A, or if it doesn't enable Plan A in itself, uh, gives the answer from the Scottish people. So it's a win-win as far as I can see. Chris, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, if we're being honest, the, the UK government is a huge beast. Uh, we're naive if we don't think there's an entire department behind the scenes, not seeking any credit or gaming all of this out. And, you know, the, the, the demand for a Section 30, which, you know, it becomes this great panacea, but Section 30 is the mechanism by which you, you temporarily amend Schedule 5 of the, the Scotland Act. It, it doesn't mean you must have a referendum the same as the, the deal Alex Salmon secured in 2012. So, you know, I would be I would be surprised if the UK government's tacticians weren't thinking things such as, well, just keep saying no, because, you know, they're the ones that say it's got to be a gold standard. They're the ones that say it's got to be legally binding. You know, we never spoke of gold standards and in, in, in questions of legality until the SNP introduced those very questions. <laughs> Up until that point, we, we, we quite easily understood that Scots law and English law were or two distinct entities. So so Boris Johnson's got some easy outs and he can just keep saying no because we've established that the only way we want to have a referendum is if Boris Johnson agrees. So 
naturally Boris Johnson just keeps saying no and we don't have a referendum. But then maybe the political pressure becomes too much then. Who's to say he's got to offer the Section 30 under the same terms as 2014? He may say, OK, have a referendum, but we want to agree to this in defence, this on currency. We want um, an 85% turnout threshold. We want 65% have got to vote yes for it to be a mandate. Then we would be in the position that we would be the ones that are faced with the choice of accepting the deal that nobody wants to accept or walking away from that. And I think that's the very naive tactical situation we've allowed ourselves to enter into. Whereas we've got an opportunity now that, you know, I know some people such as yourself, Peter, think we should abandon all, all asks of a Section 30. But the reality is a lot of people in the country remember 2014 and they think that's an established process. I think that it makes sense to say, let's have a referendum that both parties can agree to. But if we make that ask, and you know, we've already made it a few times, and they say no, then we need to be in a position, obviously we'll maybe go into the Martin Keaton situation later, that, you know, the only reason the Section 30 was used in 2012 as part of the Edinburgh Agreement was that the, the legal competency hadn't been established. It hadn't been established whether or not the Scottish Parliament had the sovereignty to hold a referendum. Salmond used it as a clever tactic to just put it beyond all doubt, but that's what Martin Keatons is currently testing in the courts at the moment. But the reality is of we can't have the referendum because the UK don't agree to it. Well, that shouldn't stop us. But if we want to have a referendum and somehow we manage to be blocked in court, then we need to ask ourselves a simple question. How do the people become independent if we accept that we can't hold a referendum? And you really only need two key tests. One, you need to be sure that a majority of people in Scotland want independence. And two, you need a mechanism to evidence that. And I would argue with anyone that tells me that after hundreds of years of democracy, that elections are somehow no longer democratic and no longer internationally recognised. Like, that's just false. Thank you very much. We've got a question for Angus, and this is from David Allen. And he asks, dissent about inaction on Plan B within the indie movement is becoming louder. Do you believe Nicola is stubbornly ignoring it and why? It's very hard to get into somebody else's mind. I just wish we had had a debate on it twice we've asked. In 2019, when we asked, we had all sorts of spurious excuses. Uh, we closed them off this time. I mean, Chris was ever inventive when he <laughs> suggested that we amend uh, the fairly tepid let's uh, place a Scottish government motion at conference. Uh, to include this is quite an inventive stroke. Even went as far as go to Aberdeen to get booed which was Shorey's de determination to do this. And this year, when we did it, we even got the National Secretary involved and made sure he dotted the I's and crossed the T's and make sure he was happy. I just wish we had an insurance policy because, you know, we said in 2019, if we did, did this, and I just couldn't believe we waited until after the election to ask because we should have asked before the election and then got the no that was inevitably coming and then changed our ask of the people at the election. But if we don't have a different ask uh, at the election, we're going to get the same again. We knew in 2019, you know, some people thought there was a secret plan. Uh, well, the secret plan is there was no secret plan. That was the big secret. And we found that out in January onwards. And the secret plan for after the 2021 uh, 6th of May election is there's no secret plan either. We either get a referendum. If we go if we go at it in this way, we get a referendum from Boris Johnson or not. And the answer is going to be not. Um, so to, uh, to guess... Um, we as an SNP can't blame one person who happens to be the leader. You know, we can't say uh, that, that the leader's all responsible. 
Uh, we can't also imagine that the leaders are powerful and infallible and predestined to always make the right decisions, because when we look back quite clearly, uh, everybody it make, it makes mistakes, and there's been tactical mistakes in the last number of years as well, which is why we, <laughs> we didn't get anything out of the 2019 election constitutionally. Uh, so it's not just the, the, the First Minister, there's many other MPs, ministers, everybody else has got to stand up, step up to the plate on this, and members and branches, and demand this the best they can. Um, maybe that's easier uh, said than done. Okay, thanks, Angus. Uh, so I'm going to bring in, we've got a question from Robert McAllister on Zoom. Um, Robert, if you want to unmute yourself, looks interesting about if smaller parties have got a plebiscite in their manifesto. Uh, aye, the question was, was basically if something has been muted that some of the smaller parties uh, will have a plebiscite in their manifesto. If that being the case and you get a majority indie parties in your Holyrood and the SNP don't have it in their manifesto, where does that leave us? I think I wrote a column in the National maybe about six months about this, basically urging that this was in the lead up to the, the last SNP conference. Um, urging that the SNP's NEC should be reaching out to other pro-Indy parties because of, of people say this is the most important election in the history of Scotland and as well as all the obvious devolved matters, this election is the independence election. We, we should be reaching out to the wider independence movement. And I mean, absolutely, the SNP, the Greens, other parties, they'll have differences in their manifestos, but we should come to a common, a common position on independence so that every single pro-independence vote means the same thing. And that, I think that's why it's, it's unfortunate that we've waited until January of the election year to be having this debate. If we'd had it a year ago, they gave us more time. But, you know, all under one banner is a massive lobby group within the movement. The SNP having a national assembly at the end of, this, sorry, end of January to discuss these very things. And I think that what should be coming out of that is that we should be going to other pro-independence parties because, you know, we might not agree with domestic issues, but we all agree on independence. And if we all agree on independence, surely we all agree that the, the most sensible position is that every single independence vote counts for independence. So that we can't have an obscene situation that Boris Johnson can try and claim that 15 or 20 odd percent of the vote doesn't count because it wasn't a vote for the SNP, because let's not be surprised if they'll do that. But I think a key point we need to remember is that in 2019, so that was a UK general election, in the UK government, they, they released the, the, the standard press release about a referendum every single time saying it's a reserved matter and it's not for the Scottish Parliament. They said that again today of the Keatons case. So, so how does that make sense then? So if it's a reserved matter, but the SNP won 48 out of 59 seats in the reserved election, why was that mandate not good enough to deliver the referendum? But in the devolved election, if we win a majority in that election, Boris will change his mind. I just think that's a point we, we don't often make often enough because, you know, there's always a debate of whether Mrs Thatcher said or did she not. But you, you all remember growing up that a majority for the SNP in a general election was a mandate for independence. But that just isn't cool anymore. But I don't think we should forget it, you know, that... We won 56 seats in 2015, we won 35 seats in 2017, we won 48 seats in 2019. These are historic seismic votes that no one in the SNP would have ever predicted would have happened. But they have happened, and if we're being truthful, what have we done with all those votes to 
pursue and advance a case of independence with honourable company excluded, obviously. I mean, I think if, if I can just jump in there, a good question, Robert, and there's a couple of extra thoughts that may come my way. At the beginning, I said, you know, we need a vote in independence, and there's two ways to get the vote. Uh, there's a vote at a referendum. We use the ballot boxes that are stored in offices and whatever at a referendum, or we use them at an election. As matters are at the moment, uh, Boris Johnson blocks the ballot boxes from being used at a referendum. Unfortunately, also, as matters are at the moment, the SNP policy blocks the ballot boxes being used at an election, which is the most legal and most internationally recognised thing that happens in any country ever. Um, so that is a huge disappointment if that happens. But to your specific point, should we talk to others? Yeah, um, we should certainly lead by example, I would say, and do it ourselves. It also probably opens a flank to perhaps as some we as SNP or I as SNP don't particularly want us to give opportunity to other political parties. Usually in politics, you, you try and close close those loops off. Um, so that isn't probably the best thing that we are doing. Also, you know, we, we really should uh, think about that and make sure that we're putting the election. We are about independence. We aren't going to make things better in Scotland until we sort the upstream issue. Uh, loads of things that even the Unionist parties were calling us to mitigate this and mitigate that, even from their own colleagues' damage down the road. Now, we shouldn't be having this damage inflicted on us, but we do and we can because of the constitutional constitutional architecture over Scotland. And that's what we're trying to change uh, so that we can get rid of uh, terrible child poverty figures and food banks and all sorts of other nonsense that we've got in Scotland that we shouldn't have. But we aren't going to change things unless we've got independence. Now, that sometimes shouldn't need to be said, but if there are any sort of um, floating voters or a unionist uh, press looking in, that's the sort of thing that they forget about, uh, that independence is an upstream issue that sorts and diverts uh, power uh, so that downstream issues uh, can be tackled. I hope I've answered your question reasonably well, Robert. I think I've meandered a little bit, uh, like the river, the proverbial river I was talking about. Thanks very much for that, Angus. Okay, we've got a question from Facebook, and it's Robert Wilson's asked a very interesting question. Do the panel think Wales will go for independence soon and will Scotland be first to go? Well, I mean, I think from Wales, there's something very interesting happening there. The Welsh uh, National Party Plaid Cymru are not in any way embarrassed or shy or reticent about now striking out for independence. They make the case all the time. Uh, their opponents might moan about it. When our opponents moan about it, sometimes we quieten down on it. The reason they're moaning about it is because we're actually hitting, we're hitting a nerve. So who knows what's going to happen? Uh, but I think we, there's certainly a huge change. You know, I suppose in many ways this opportunity has come around because of Brexit. That changed a fundamental part of the Scottish promise and the Scottish contract in, in 2014. It was vote for the UK to stay in the EU. Now, something like 52% voted to stay in the UK and 60-odd percent voted to stay in the EU. So it's a greater percentage of Scots uh, value the European Union more than they did uh, the uh, UK union on the basis of what turned out on each particular day. I suppose just, just an interesting point on that as well. It's obviously Plaid have never had control in Wales and, and one could have argued that maybe you needed that period of control the same as the SNP had to, to, to evidence to people. But w- what the coronavirus has done for Wales is people see maybe for one of the first times is that actually when Wales makes its own decisions and doesn't have to wait and Boris actually makes more sense just the same way as many people are seeing that in Scotland. So I think that whether Wales becomes independent before Scotland, I don't think that will be the case. But I think it's clear that when Scotland does become independent, it would be inevitable 
that we would see Wales pursue and advance their claim to independence. And probably you would, he would likely then, within that word, a generation, see reunification in Ireland. And, and I think that's why the, you know, Angus talks about the Tories, and you get, I suppose you get the two different types of Tories. You get the kind of little Englanders that don't really care about the, the, the union, and you get the ones that care about the union. And the, the British unionist element of the Tory party is petrified of Scottish independence, because for them it will be the end of a 300-year project of, of empire. And, and, and be under no doubts with Scottish independence it will be the, the last nail in the coffin of the British Empire and I mean, you've seen some, some some person on Twitter last night was talking about how we will, we will fight to the death to stop Scottish independence and you know these, these are the things that when when you know people from all under one banner on the SNP and the indie movement say they, they make the front page of newspapers but there is a British nationalist unionist element out there and they, 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 they absolutely will do anything they can to block Scottish independence, whether that's cheating or blocking elections, as we see through Boris Johnson. But I just think that the case in 2014 nearly got us over the line because of that positive vision. And I know there are arguments on currency and on policy matters, but we, we then open up a can of worms into, you know, of, of independences, what Chris McElhaney or Angus McNeil thinks independence should look like. Well, that might not be independence to Neil Mathis and James Kerr or, or, or Alex Wallace. You know, and, and if we then lose votes because people say, well, that wasn't the currency I wanted, that wasn't the pension rate I wanted. That's why I think it's really important. And I think all under one banner do a really good job of getting the question back to sovereignty and the right and the ability to make decisions. And if you just look at the coronavirus, you know, absolutely mistakes have been made. And I think no government in the world has done this perfect. But what people see is that when you've got the right and the ability to make your own choices, the people that come first and foremost, you're elected to represent. And I think that's why currently we're seeing all of these polls, because, you know, I know coronavirus is a horrible, it's a horrible issue, and I know so many people have been affected by it, but many people for the first time are maybe starting to realise, so you know what, imagine that it was Boris Johnson making these decisions. <laughs> it kind of makes sense that we make them, and if it makes sense that we make them on this, and why are we spending £200 billion on Trident? You know, why are we spending £50-odd billion pound in HS2? Maybe if we made all of these decisions, we would get better outcomes. And I think that's going to be the legacy again into next year. And it gives us a land of opportunity. But there is a real prize at this May election. And if we went to this election saying just vote SNP so we can ask Boris Johnson or we can have a referendum, I think that's a real, real mistake. Whereas what we should begin into this election is saying vote for independence, vote for Scotland. And I think that will be a clear mandate that we've got it. If I could just come back in on the, on the Welsh uh, point there, I, I agree a lot with what Chris said. I think things aren't going to really improve much for Wales until it is independent. And if we think back uh, the 98, 99 years since Ireland, uh, since Ireland became independent, now Ireland was the worst bet of the UK, of the then UK nations. The current UK only dates to 1922. Uh, my favourite trivia question. But anyway, uh, they have leapfrogged because of their independence and the choices they can make. Now, if Ireland was still in the UK, it would be today worse than Wales, as it is. Ireland's number two in the UN's Human Development Index that was published three or four weeks ago, uh, only second to Norway. So a country to Scotland's west is number two in the world, and a country to Scotland's east is number one in the world. I think we're in quite a good locality to make things a lot better in Scotland for an awful lot of people, but we just need the powers and we need the decision-making. We don't want the decision-making made by Rishi Sunak and by Boris Johnson. We're better off made in Scotland by whoever Scotland chooses to elect at each and every election subsequently. That was in, uh, excellent, Angus, thank you. Uh, so the next question, linking on with what Chris was talking about a moment ago about the, the lengths that the British state will go to, 
is a Catalan-type situation. What will happen in the event of Plan B? Um, and uh, what do you think will come of that? So to bring in Laurie Serantes, please unmute yourself. Thank you. Well, my, my, my question is about the Catalan-like situation because I come from, from, from the north of Spain. And, uh, well, I, I support the Scottish independence. And I would like to, to know what do you think that the, the UK government is willing to do if there's a Catalan-like situation of stalemate? I don't know if you, if you know what's been happening last year uh, since the, the, the declaration of independence by, by Puigdemont in, in, in Catalonia. And what the SNP would do in that situation? I have a very good question. Um, I think that in the first instance, I'm always, uh, in the past, I used to try and people stop talking about Quebec because we, we need erroneous lessons and translate erroneous lessons from different situations. The one thing I will say that is pretty obvious to me in this, I, I look at three capitals in Europe, Madrid, London, and Copenhagen. And Madrid has got a terrible uh, attitude and behavior uh, towards democracy. In Catalonia, you don't jail people, and there's an, also an awful silence at the top of European countries. Giver Hofstad, very notable in the European Union, has got something to say about everything, never says a word about uh, the Catalan situation. But London isn't like the Spanish government. It doesn't behave like that, and it won't be jailing people. Uh, and we won't be in that situation where we have to go to that. I think we, we've got a clearer route that the Catalans uh, didn't have. Uh, but London is neither, is it uh, Copenhagen, which is a situation with the Faroe Islands, choose what powers you want to take whenever you want them and just go with it. So there are three differences of an approach that I see quite notably in Europe. There's the Copenhagen approach, and it's probably the same towards Greenland as well. It certainly is towards the, the Faroe Islands. And the Faroe Islands, 50,000 people, far more powerful uh, than the Scottish Parliament. have done remarkable things with the best 4G in the world. They've just built an 11-kilometre tunnel. Uh, subsea for 50,000 islanders. That's twice the size of the Hebrides, for goodness sakes. Um, so it goes to show what can be done. The UK government are somewhere between Copenhagen and Madrid, but they just are not like that. I don't can't see that situation arising at all around. Chris, do you have anything to add? Yeah, well, I think the, the, the first point is, as you rightly say, about the European Union. You know, I, I like Europe, but it doesn't mean I'm totally in love with the political institutions of the European Union. When Scotland does rejoin the EU, I would like to see much reform because I think that one of the major failings of the European Union is that it's been absolutely silent. that There are political prisoners in continental Europe as we speak and we've heard little of next to nothing from any of the EU's leadership and I think that's really, really is a sad state of affairs. But I think, I suppose, when you get back to the, this lawful, there won't be a referendum in Scotland that's not lawful. So there will be a national returning officer, there will be 32 local returning officers, which will most likely be chief executives of councils. And, and I suppose the, the difference in Catalonia was, of course, there was political control at municipal level, whereas across Scotland, SNP, we don't have a majority in any council. And there's a pro-independence majority in just a few councils. So... The only way a referendum's going to happen is if a referendum bill goes through the Scottish Parliament and the Lord Advocate of Scotland deems it lawful. So that's a lawful referendum. Then if the UK government wants to challenge that and take you to the court of session and the Supreme Court and deem it not lawful, then it wouldn't happen. You would need to challenge that. Or if they don't challenge you, then it's a lawful referendum. So, so I think that's a, that's a distinct difference that unionists quite often like to say, well, it'll be Catalonia, you know, 
we will have a referendum unless it's through the Scottish Parliament and lawful. It's a pretty key point, but I just think it does link back into that European question, and, and I hope there's some questions about that, because, you know, in 2016, I absolutely voted for Scotland to remain in the EU, but in that scale of one totally against the EU and ten totally in favour, I was like six or seven. What I want is I want Scotland to be able to live and exist and cooperate peacefully with the countries around us. I want us to be able to trade between Scotland and France and Spain and Norway, that of course aren't in the EU. And I think for the majority of Scots, you know, that, that's really just what you're looking for. You're looking for something that reflects how you want to live. I suppose the political levels of bureaucracy were the reasons that people did vote for Brexit. And there are a not inconsequential amount of Scots who support independence that did back Brexit. So when we are coning in on a new campaign, you need to be careful, again, as we were saying earlier, that would people that voted Brexit not vote for independence the next time round? Because they did want to be out of the European Union and vice versa. And I think that's a really easy way to just sum that up. It's, it's not about whether Scotland has left or whether we remained. It's about what we voted for being respected. So Scotland voted to remain in the EU, so we should remain in the EU. Scotland had a vote to leave, that would have been a different situation. But one of the benefits I think we do get from Westminster is that people like Angus get to chair pretty hefty select committees, International Trade Committee, I think it's called. So yeah. we've got people that understand trade, and we've had the benefit of four years of seeing the real mess the UK government has made of things. We should be able to have a playbook of here's all the mistakes that you don't walk into negotiation with which hopefully will stand us in good stead, because we will, whether we like it or not, have to negotiate some sort of settlement, whether it's called the Scottish Anglo Treaty or, or whatever. We'll need to negotiate a, a, a treaty after independence. And that, that's something I think groups like this, national assemblies, should exist to talk about, you know, because it shouldn't just be a case of you vote for independence and then, you know, in two years' time, that's what it looks like. The people that vote for it, the people that don't vote for it, should be invested in starting to put the building blocks in place. Just a final point on, on that like Chris sort of mentioned, that there's sometimes chatted with illegal referendums. An illegal referendum would be just impossible, as Chris was alluding to, because uh, you can't get the, the ballot stations manned, you wouldn't get the votes counted, you wouldn't get the returning officers turning out. It just can't happen. So if there's a referendum going to be in Scotland, it will be legal, uh, or else it's not happening. Thank you very much. That was a brilliant question, by the way. And <laughs> really, really liked that one. And um, we've got Lee, who's on Facebook, who has asked a question I see quite a lot on social media. Why do we need permission from the UK government to have a second independence referendum? Is it not a voluntary union we're in? Well, I think if, if I go first here, I'll, I'll be brief, Chris. We probably got, we probably both got loads to say. We, we need a mechanism to do establish what the Scottish people want. We're not certain that the Scottish Parliament has uh, this power. Uh, this one Martin Keatings is doing. We do know that the last time he's got through a Section 30 order uh, from uh, Westminster. Um, that's why we need a ballot box event of some kind to prove that internationally and legally uh, that the Scottish people want independence. Now, what myself and Chris are saying with Plan B is in the event of Plan A not working, which, take it as read, it ain't going to work, uh, that we use a ballot box event at elections. Now, we either do that in 2021 or we do that years later. That's the way we have to go. We, we, we can't decide any other way. We need the permission of the people to do this, is what I'd say. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we need permission, but we don't become independent just because I say we don't need permission and I think it's a good idea, let's become independent. And that's why Angus and I had three points of Plan B. The first point was reflecting that in 2014, we had a mechanism that the whole country, whether they voted yes or no, 
agreed was a valid mechanism. So we said, well, okay, let's do that again. But if the UK government say, no, you're not doing that again, we don't just say, well, that's it, we can't have a referendum. We say, well, let's have our own referendum. And by asking first to repeat the Edinburgh Agreement, that group of people, those undecideds, you might bring them with you. Whereas if you just say to hell it, we're going with it, you might lose them. And then likewise, if the UK government can block and the courts are having a referendum, that's what the plebiscite, so the referendum becomes a plebiscite. But if we had said at day one that that's it, the election, council election 2017, this is a, a referendum and independent, people would have said, well, how is it? Because that's not 2014. So you would lose those people. So what we and Angus have been trying to do the last two years is, is evidence to people that, look, we wanted to have a Section 30 referendum. We wanted that. That was our first preference. The reason we're not having that is because the UK government don't want you to have a choice like you did in 2014. And when they blocked that choice, we wanted to create our own referendum in Scotland, deemed lawful with our own Lord Advocate, and if we won the election on that mandate, hold that referendum. But they've blocked that as well in the courts. So you've got a lot of people there saying, well, hold on, Scotland should be independent. So if they won't do this Section 30, you know, which I still think is a niche issue, but you know, everyone in this room, in this meeting, knows what the Section 30 is all about, but I still think it is a bit niche getting that across the majority of Scotland. But if people say, well, they won't let them do that, they won't let them do that, well, what does that leave you with? How do you go to 50 to 60% of the country being in favour of independence and wanting to express that? You've got to use the ballot box. But what you've done is you've not just went straight in there, you've evidenced to the people that Boris Johnson has blocked them having a choice, Boris Johnson has blocked you giving them a choice, and the only way you can now express your choice is in the election. And I think that brings a whole big group of people behind the legitimacy of that. And that's all you need for Scottish independence, as, as I say that as if it's easy. All you need is the majority of the people and a legitimate mechanism to show that the majority of the people voted for it. And that's what would happen in May's election if we made it about that. That's great. Thanks, Chris. Uh, well, next to bring in Roddy1314 on a really important question. Uh, on how we get the SNP leadership to agree to this. Find out which side Roddy was on in 13 and 14. I was with the Barhead division, so we were all right. <laughs> so I am more affectionately known as the Barhead boy. But if I could just uh, I just make an observation before I get to my point, I'd like to agree with my, my good friend Peter Bell, which I don't always do, I've got to say. But on this Section 30 thing, which I think is wrong, there is a danger, is there not? And this isn't my main question, that a danger... That, uh, that Boris, because they're strategists, I think our problem is we lack strategy as a party and a group and a, and a group of movement. But um, they are strategists, they've been doing it for hundreds of years, and they say, okay, I tell you what, we've changed our mind. You can have your Section 30. However, you need to have a two thirds majority. If you lose this, uh, you have to wait 50 years for another one, and uh, it has to be held on a Tuesday. They can put any conditions, and then we go, well, that's not acceptable. Say, well, you had your chance. Bang goes your chance of a referendum. So I am been promoting, and I do believe in this plebiscite. I think it's at the moment our only escape route and our only legal, inverted commas, possible way. However, our problem is not Boris Johnson or legality. Our problem is internal. And how do we get the leadership and Nicholas Sturgeon to actually realise that? Now, there's a difference between being dogged and determined and being downright bloody stubborn. Uh, and I would like to know how it's great for us all to agree. And I think from what I'm gathering, there's plenty of uh, support for a, an independence plebiscite throughout the movement. And I think the numbers are there. I think the numbers are there. No bother for a yes. But our problem 
is the leadership of the SNP. Now, if they won't let you debate it, even debate it at conference, how the hell are they going to say, well, we've changed our mind now and we're going to have a plebiscite in May because it's the way forward? So this talk's great, but how do we make it happen? It's a $6 million question that Chris McElhenney is going to answer. We won't change their mind. There's the, I'm an electrician, I'm not a politician answer. We won't change their mind, right? But we've got the opportunity to move their position. And I think that the plebiscite should happen. But we're not going to go for that, right? That's me being honest with you. There's no point in me saying, yep, we'll, we'll, we'll get Nicola to change her mind and she's just going to agree here. But what I think can happen is we can push the position away for the Section 30 being a panacea. I think we can push the leadership into a position that, you know, a referendum's a referendum's a referendum. The public of Scotland just know what a referendum is. The mechanisms are whether it's a Section 30 or the Lord Advocate in the Scottish Parliament, a referendum's a referendum. And when we win in May's election, we're having a referendum, come what may. We're not going to Downing Street with our tail between our legs to ask permission from the Prime Minister of England and the rest of the United Kingdom to let us have a choice in our own future. We're having a referendum. We're putting a referendum bill through our Parliament. Our Lord Advocate is deeming it lawful. Our Boris then wants to take us to the court of session, we'll beat him. Pretty confident Joanna Cherry would beat him. If he wants to take us to the UK Supreme Court, then it's a bit of a win-win situation for us at that point. Because if we beat him in his own turf, then we're having that referendum. But if Boris Johnson somehow manages for a referendum bill to go through Scotland's parliament on the back of the people of Scotland voting for that in an election, and it goes to Scotland's highest court, and Scotland's highest court, just like it did with the prorogation case, deems that we should have a lawful referendum. And if an English, a London court, then blocks the people of Scotland having a choice in their own future, that 50, 60, 60% goes over 60 towards 70%. Right? That, that's what I think will happen. And, this, and, and Suzanne mentioned earlier on about secret plans. Secret plans is the biggest political bluff and bluster you will ever hear. You cannot win independence for a nation by going to the ballot box and voting for something for six weeks later for them to pull a rabbit out of the hat and say, ha-ha, here's what you are really voting for. It's a nonsense. You must be honest with the people. You must set out methodically what it'll look like. And this is what it'll look like. We will have a referendum. But if the bloc is having a referendum, then we're not just going to say Scotland can't be independent and people in Scotland can't have a choice. There is another mechanism, thanks to a supermajority. The Scottish Parliament could have a new election. The government could resign and we could call an election. And by that point, you've evidenced that they wouldn't want to give you a Section 30. You've evidence that you try to have a referendum in the block in the courts. How do people in Scotland then make choices on whether it should be more bedroom tax, two hundred billion pound in Trident, a generation of austerity to pay for the COVID bill? How do you evidence to people in Scotland that the only way we can take our destiny into our own hands is for independence? You've done it at that point, and that leads us on to an important point, and one I think the SNP need to think seriously about. To do that you might need a two-thirds majority in the Scottish Parliament. So should we elect a pro-independence majority to the Scottish Parliament with Murdo Fraser, Annie Wells, Richard Leonard, name your unionist, or should we elect a super-majority to the Scottish Parliament, which will put it beyond doubt that the Scottish Parliament is a pro-independence Parliament? And that's come back to that question earlier. The SNP, NEC need to have seen these grown-up talks with the other parties. Because as I said at the start, you know, the record 
number in the history of the Scottish Parliament voted SNP on the constituency. How many list MSPs did the SNP deliver for independence? I'm an SNP politician and I believe in SNP policies, but above all else, I believe in independence. And I think that the more pro-independence parliamentarians we can get elected, the stronger position we're in. Can I come in on Roddy's point? I mean, I think it's harder to move away from the central point that, that, that Roddy made, was, and it was an internal problem. It's that we're not getting motion for the SNP, um, hierarchy, governance, or whoever's de- deciding at the top. There's silence from near the top. It's been blocked twice to discuss this. I mean, we shouldn't be having this debate. I know uh, one politician said that we shouldn't be having these debates publicly. Well, they're not happening privately either. And we have no strategy for uh, a Boris veto, as we saw in January. We've also, we've discovered as well, had no strategy for Scotland being taken out against their will in Brexit. Um, that's something else that we've got to face up to, you know. So sometimes I think there's a tendency to sit back and imagine that leaders can be omnipotent and know everything and be absolutely fantastic at press conferences, flying planes, growing gardens, whatever you name, uh, strategies. Uh, but sometimes, you know, skill sets are different. So if, if we don't have a change, Roddy, and, you know, there's opportunity to do that. There's a pivoted Brexit. There's been pivoted polls. There should be demanding going on constantly from Michael Russell for a Section 30. It's not happening. So, you know, I'm at this point on the 28th of December with, what, five months and probably a week or so to go to the Scottish election. You're right. I mean, you, you do confront us with a very real problem that unless something major happens in the thinking of the SNP, which will be the largest pro-independence group in the Scottish Parliament, then by blocking us blocking the election for independence and Boris blocking the ballot boxes to use a referendum, there's no really to go except carry on this conversation in June. That's basically when Boris says no again for the next number of years. And that is probably why we're having this event and that we're trying to do something and I hope the penny drops with some of our colleagues that Boris will say no. There's no way. There's no way Boris. I mean, my friend and colleague Peter Wishart said he could be ground down. Why is he not being ground down now? Then he could be ground down. We are. Let's let's get a grip of what Scotland is. We're eight point one percent of the UK population. We're about fifty to sixty percent of that eight point one once independent. So that leaves Boris Johnson with about ninety five to ninety six percent of people, at best indifferent, at worst against Scottish independence. He doesn't give a monkey's about Scottish independence or the majority of the Scottish people. I mean, the majority of the people of Cornwall want something, doesn't really, or Norwich or whatever, doesn't really bother us, uh, just to give you a context of, of, the, of the thinking there. So, uh, Roddy, you take me to a profoundly depressing place. We'll bring it back to 1314. The, the news was cheerier then. Thanks very much, Roddy. <laughs> it's nice to see you, by the way. OK, we're going back to Facebook and we've got David Dand, who asks a slightly controversial question. How do we guarantee that voting won't be tampered with again this time? Again, sorry to be controversial with a party, but I don't believe it was tampered with. I'm a little counsellor. Uh, you know, the, the polling places which I go around all day, which I've forgotten how many times I've been around them in the last decade, around elections we've had, it's the same people that are working in our schools, you know, are working on our roads, are working in our health and social care, or our home helps, that are sitting there watching the ballots. I'm one of the sad people that still follows the ballots in the cars, back to the counting place. And then it's the, we're teachers, we're classroom assistants, you know, we're active schools coordinators. It's people in our community that then count the votes. Um, so we lost the last time. 
I think because of things like the vow and false promises, which scaremongered people, grannies getting told they wouldn't get their pensions and people being lied to, it uh, wasn't for any other reason. And I think we'll win it the next time by understanding why we lost it, fixing those issues and continue to build a bigger positive case for yes. Yeah, I think I would I would back up I would back up what Chris is saying there. I mean, when I saw the votes being counted in Stornoway, I knew there were some pro-independence people counting those votes. Obviously, I'm sure some not pro-independence people counting them. But you know, when the individual ballot boxes from particular areas came in here in Barra, we were 86% pro-independence. I think Isle of Eggs tells me they were 100%. But you know, there was areas were different. It was the same people that were in charge of that. So there's from our point of view, sadly, it was what it was. But at least we had 48%, which is above the national average at the time so it was a bit better than it was some other places so the, the cities did well ah, back in another depressing place move on please okay we'll move on Angus because I seen a question and it wasn't addressed was postal oh. vote so I mean I mean obviously quite quite in vogue with the American election but again, again if, you, if you're an election agent you, you'll be familiar with the process and Ruth Davidson has a lot to answer for because she, she really caused a lot of people not believing in the legitimacy of the process. What happens is the, the postal's come in, right? So you trust your postie, yes or no? It's a sad day when we don't trust, trust our posties. So they come into the, your council, your counting areas, and then those votes get opened, right? Because they're in two envelopes. Then they get opened and they get put into a ballot box. And I know that I would do this, of course, because mm-hmm. I'm led to believe it's an offence. If you're sleek and quick enough, you can get a look at some of the votes. So that's what she's done. So she's seen probably that, and it was the case, you know, in 2014 Inverclyde, our stacks for yes were going up. And then when we seen all these postals dumped, the stacks for no went up. The, the, the reason there is just, it's a correlation between the demographs of the voter and who votes postal. And it's actually quite important, I think, next year, because if you look at the, the US election, so, you know, you woke up in the morning and the bookies were saying Donald Trump had won it because of these huge leads they had. But then all these votes that were coming in were postal votes, and the Democrats had this magnificent campaign against people signed up for postals. So in some areas, 95% of the votes coming in were Democrat votes. Yeah. So in May, you know, you've the coronavirus, you know, I don't think I got my vaccine until July or August. You're still going to have a lot of issues with physical distancing. People might not want to go out. So I know the SNP are going to have a big, massive uh, drive to get people to sign up for postal votes in January. And I think that'll be quite important because I think that that'll be something the Tories will be really good at. The Labour Party will be really good at. So this probably will be a very strange election because I think this will be the first election in history that more people will have voted before the day of the election than on the day of the election, which political parties need to wake up to because, you know... Some, including the SNP, don't announce their manifesto sometimes until seven days before the, the election. <laughs> if it, people have been voting for, for well over a week. So that, that's something I think we need to be really alive to. Is how, how, do, how do we then manage to turn out or vote for independence as well? Because we should still be pushing that there should be a referendum in 2021. We shouldn't concede that you know, we need to wait until the, everybody's had a vaccine because you know that could be 2022 and whatever economic policies the UK government an act we were signed up to, but how do we manage to get all those people that voted in 2014 to come out and vote, when if we're being honest, there was big groups of disenfranchised voters there. Like, you know, the turnout was 85%, so there was 20 per, a fifth of the population that don't bother voting in a normal election come out and vote for independence. Where did they go in this kind of new COVID postal world? I think in 2017, just a minor point, the, the Corbyn bounce, as it was fabled, happened between the postal votes going out 
and and polling day. Uh, so in my area, we saw Labour doing slightly better than they usually are on polling day. But then when the polling votes, uh, when the postal votes came in, that wasn't reflected at all because they were they were more typically as we would expect them to have been. Because uh, we we did dip, as we all know, in 2017, we certainly had a dip in the islands. Majority would do. Um, so that's the, the, the way elections kind of go. I just saw in the chat there that Susan has put a point in that you know, the election being postponed in May. There's two things that jumped in my mind about that is maybe it gives us more time for, for uh, making sure the SNP uh, gets its ducks in a row and doesn't make Boris the most important person in the election. Uh, but the second point is, will other countries be doing the same? And uh, if we do postpone the election, what's that saying about in a number of other areas and ways about infection in Scotland and how we can deal with it or whatever? Uh, so I haven't got an answer, but I've just got points. It's a good point, Susan. Brennan. Thanks, Susan. Uh, we've got a really interesting question here from uh, Brenda Carson. Who decides what's in the manifesto? Hello, hi. Uh, I've been in the SNP m- most of the past 50 years, and this is the most depressed I've ever been because it seems to me that we've squandered all these mandates that we've given the SNP. So what I want to know is who actually decides if we want to have a one-line manifesto. In other words, I can say to my neighbour, if you're voting SNP, you're voting to get an independence referendum. No ifs, no buts, nothing about gender, nothing about schools, nothing about housing, nothing about anything else. One line in the manifesto. Who actually decides this? Is it Nicola? Is it the NEC? Is it the Assembly? Is there any mechanism to make a vote from all the SNP members or is it some other committee? I don't know. Could you help me, please? I guess Angus is going to say over to you, Chris. Chris is the great constitutional guy. He's going to say something about the deputy leader, I'm sure, now, but a lot more besides. Thanks very much. First of all, Brenda, for 50 years of effort towards the cause. <laughs> so, yeah, again, I know everybody's known SNP memory. Constitutionally, Keith Brown, the deputy leader, has a responsibility for the pulling together the manifesto. We're a lay-led organisation, so everyone should get a feed-in policies, and that should then go all the way up to the top and create this manifesto. In practice, there will be staff members putting together bits of the manifesto. You know, you, you got a manifesto announcement at the conference on free school meals being extended to primary five, six and sevens. Good policy, I would say. So the reality is you'll have staff members who we pay for putting this together feeding in from the cabinet secretaries that think, well, that's an opportunity, that's an opportunity. And that comes together into a quite hefty document of like 100 pages. Nobody reads a 100-page manifesto before they go to vote, myself included. So you're right, it comes down to the, the, the key the key pledges. So that'll be, a key pledge will be the free school meals pledge, four or five others. But you're right, <laughs> they, they should, all very important, you know, edging, transport, Criminal justice, important matters, but this is an independence election, so top of the bill on the front page has to be independence for Scotland. So that's what people have to know they're voting for when they go to the election. Um, but I mean, you, you make a really good point. I think it's why groups are all under one banner get so much support because there, there's such a latent potential amongst independence activist community. And then when you, you try to hone that into a political party who have quite complicated structures, antiquated ways of actually getting input into these structures, you know, people just want to maybe turn up march, talk, come up with ideas, and you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that quite often, and, and I think that's why these are really good opportunities, and you just are supposed to conclude that. The SNP's having the, the National Assembly at the end of January. We've only really started having National Assemblies when people started demanding the opportunity to talk and discuss. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think we should be limited to the SNP. I think all under one banner should continue to do that, whether it's mm-hmm. on the 
education, whether it's on transport, whether it's on Angus's rest and be thankful, you know, that it's just basically seems to be in the long grass for another 10 years. I, I think that there is a demand in Scotland that people want to talk about political opportunity, that you don't get in political parties, and then you can actually use those conversations to dictate how the political parties should then be pursuing their matters. I think what, what Chris is basically saying there is email the deputy leader of the SNP, Keith Brown, uh, if you do want to see this happening, because that's mm-hmm. one way of feeding in your wish on this. And mm-hmm. so that people know it's not just myself and Chris periodically writing stuff in the National about this, but that people people do want this. Uh, it'd be great if it happened, because we've, we've got the numbers. We just need the ballot box event to move well, Scotland forward. It's crazy yeah. that having to discuss this in our own side, to get uh-huh. on side to enable yeah. this. I mean, this uh-huh. We're blocking independence at the ballot box at the elections. We're blocking, then handing it, making Boris most powerful. He blocks it. But actually, it's us again, because we shouldn't have given Boris this position. It's head doing. So just to be clear, we've all to email Keith Brown saying that we demand that number one, and in fact, in my case, I'm going to say the only thing I want to see in the manifesto is that they make this uh, a manifesto for a plebiscite. Is that correct? You've heard it from Brenda Carson tonight, folks. So that is the top <laughs> idea. Okay, thanks. I'll be doing that right away when this is finished. Thank you. Thanks very much, Brenda. That was fantastic. Love that. Right, we've had a few questions all kind of on the same theme, so I'm just going to kind of group them all together. A lot of people asking about what you both think about the Martin Keaton's case. I think it's a good idea. I mean, I think something's got to happen somewhere to make things happen and move. You know, it should be the Scottish Government should have done this, pursued this, the way they should be pursuing the Section 30. They should have avenues open. Who would have thought that after the Brexit referendum, which was a game changer, I mean, we've got to say that, had Scotland voted for Brexit or had Brexit not gone through, then the independents uh, wouldn't have got the big jump it got. Um, I think there was big talk in, in June 2016, which is four and a half years ago, of uh, things happening. Nothing has happened. We're now on the cusp of Brexit. There has been no plan for Scotland. We are being taken out against their will. We are being disrespected. So something should have been happening in the last four and a half years. And thankfully, Martin Keating is doing something. Um, whether or not he gets there, uh, it's another question. There are other questions about the legality and the, the approach. Is he better to be pursued? I think Chris has got a different point of view to me on this, uh, which is fine too, uh, if I'm right. Um, but, you know, I'm going to see things happening because doing nothing is not the best approach at all. I think three things will happen. First thing, I think, will be that the court won't want to make a determination in, in an election cycle. So I think that because there could be obvious political ramifications, so I don't think there will be a, a finding before, even though I know there is there is listings for it in January, I don't think there will be a finding and a determination before the election. The second point, I think, is that and I was reading a constitutional lecture, Chris McCartendale, who just happens to be from Greenock, on this today. Um, I don't think that the court will look too favourably on making a determination on something that's in the abstract. It, it's not an actual thing. You know, whereas, for example, if the Scottish government had said we're having a referendum, the Lord Advocate said it's lawful, and someone challenged the legality of that thing, they'd be determining on. And the, the third thing is, I, I think that they will, in their determination, more or less point out this is a political matter, which basically is code for the UK and the Scottish government need to sort this out politically. To go back to Angus's point, you know, I, I think it's a real shame that when we just heard from Brenda there, who 37 years campaigned to get a SNP, go- well, a Scottish Parliament and then an SNP government, I think it's a real shame that a private citizen has got to raise £200,000 
to take this to the court of session when we, we are the pro-independence party as the party of government. That shouldn't have happened. What I think would have been a better situation would have been for the Scottish government just to legislate for a referendum. They keep saying, if the Lord Advocate of Scotland's Parliament says it's lawful, it is lawful. It's then up to an interested party to take that to court and prove it's not lawful, i.e. Boris Johnson's UK government. And then, and then that way, they would have been coming chasing you instead of you going to chase them for something that's still very, I mean, it's, it's not within Martin Keatons's gift to do anything with the verdict because he's not part of the Scottish government. That's the real disappointment. The Scottish government should have been proactive. They should have took him into their confidence. You know, these, Suzanne mentioned these secret plans. Was this one of the secret plans? You know, we were, we were going to hold a referendum and go to the court of session. Very much good luck to him still, all, all, all that said, because if he, if he can win the case, then I think it's, it's quite fundamental if he loses it. I don't buy this logic that it's detrimental to the cause because, you know, the, the leadership of the cause at the moment say we need a Section 30 anyway, so it's pretty much irrelevant. Um, but ultimately, I just think it's back to that point that if you want to lead the independence movement, I, I think that we're long past the time that the movement is following you as opposed to taking your marching orders from the independence movement and the leadership leading the way in in terms of which direction they've been pointed. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something I maybe add on with to Chris's words there. I mean, what really got myself and Chris going in this was, certainly from my point of view, and there were a number of things, but 2018 was the pivotal time. And there was I spoke to somebody high up in the Scottish government, and it's now two years since the Brexit referendum. You haven't asked Theresa May for the Section 30. Why not? And the answer was, she's just going to say no anyway, so there's no point. Ask her and find that out for certain. Just don't assume it. So how long are you going to sit spinning us? So, so that's why I wrote in uh, November uh, 2018, my first letter for uh, Section 30 to, to, to Theresa May. It's just a question of getting things moving. We've got to get things happening and moving. So that's, that's what Martin Keatons is doing. Good luck to him. And Chris made a cracker of a point there. If the Scottish government have got secret plans, but of course, I'll tell you the secret is there's no secret. And then why, why, why didn't they speak to Martin Keatons in the beginning? I'm sure he would have if they had any strategy at all around this and um, that he would have listened to to, to 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 their strategy and not try to hinder it but of course there is nothing else but Section 30 Thanks Angus that was great